Let's start over, buddy. Yeah. So, everybody, welcome to episode 96 of The Rock Show. And this is a very special band called the uh, Grand Funk Railroad from boys from uh, Flint, Michigan. That a, a garage band that turned into rock star. Right. It's a real kind of rags to riches to rags back to riches story. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they started off as a, you know, guys in garage bands bouncing around Michigan and uh, decided to form this power trio called Grand Funk Railroad. Um, I want to thank everybody that voted uh, in the, the Rock Show podcast group page. This is the second week of a fan requested show. Last week we did Frank Zappa. We had a nice long two hour show with that. Uh, this week yeah. we're talking Grand Funk Railroad and next week will be the only ones. And they were all voted for and uh, Zappa came in first, Grand Funk second, only ones came in third. So thank you everybody for voting for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really an amazing story. Uh, they were a people's band. That's really yeah. how they were kind of called. They, at first, they were, you know, word about them was strictly through word of mouth. Uh, they had no kind of critical acclaim at all. Critics actually didn't like them, uh, but the fans loved them. And then, you know, that's what matters, right? Yeah, it's all about the fans, man. But they Definitely. were the American band, man. The original yeah. first American band that were bigger than the Beatles. They well, they were bigger saw... than the Beatles, bigger than the Beatles at Shea Stadium, that's for sure. Let me tell you, like, how many number 10, how many top 10s did they have? How many they had, they had top several. songs? They had several and, and top 10 albums as well, even if they didn't have a hit single. Uh, you can't talk about 70s rock and roll without mentioning Grand Funk. That's how big they are. Yeah. You know, uh, you don't, people kind of leave them out of the history today a little bit. Uh, I think probably because they didn't get that critical acclaim. But they were a good band, good, solid band. I like the very early stuff best, Yeah, uh, the, the the period before we're an American band. Um, but, you know, they got good songs all around, definitely. All right, so let's get into this, Rob. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready, man. All right, cool. There's a lot of history here. That we oh, got. yeah. Now, just to, to, to get on the right page. They were formed in Flint, Michigan in 1969. It was a power trio consisting of Mark Farner on guitar and lead vocals, Don Brewer on drums, and Mel Shocker on bass. Now, there's two bands that you have to mention in the, in the prehistory of, uh, of Grand Funk, and that would be Terry Knight and the Pack and also Question Mark and the Mysterians. Yeah. Uh, Terry Knight and the Pack were a garage band based around Flint. Uh, Mark Farner and Don Brewer were both in the band, and they had formed this band in 1965. Terry Knight had formed it. He was the lead singer. Uh, they were signed to the Lucky 11 label, and uh, they actually had one national hit called I Who Have Nothing, which is a, um, it's a cover of a Ben E. King song, Ben E. King from the Drifters. Uh, kind of like a 60s pop song. Wasn't that heavy? Uh, Terry Knight had a very good voice. Uh, you know, it was it got to number 46 on the charts and it actually earned them a spot on Dick Clark's TV show where the action is. You could actually YouTube that and see Terry Knight, Mark Farner on stage and everything when he was very young, like a teenager. Um, they made one album, the first album, just called Terry Knight and the Pack in 1966. And for a brief time, Mark left the band. Uh, he joined up with Detroit guitar hero Dick Wagner, 
uh, in a band called the Boss Men. But he would return um, shortly, right in time to record their second album. It was called Reflections. And uh, right after that, in 67, uh, Terry Knight himself would actually leave. And Mark Farner took over the band. They dropped the Terry Knight name. It, it became The Pack. Now you follow? Yep. Okay. So uh, at that point, they would release some singles. Uh, Dick Wagner was involved with some of the writing. Uh, one of the singles, for instance, was a cover of the song The Harlem Shuffle. And the B-side was a track actually written by Dick Wagner called I've Got News For You. Uh, Dick Wagner is one of these guys that shows up a lot when you talk about Michigan rock and roll in the 60s and 70s. Uh, yeah. he, he, you know, played with a lot of bands. He was in a band called The Frost in 69, which was hugely popular in Detroit. Uh, he ended up playing in Alice Cooper's band, Lou Reed's band. He was kind of like, a, you know, when you needed a, a real solid rock and roll guitarist, you called up Dick. He played with a lot of people. And he came and he helped you out. Exactly. You know? exactly. He has an amazing story and an amazing book that came out about 10 years ago. He since has passed away. But uh, wow. yeah, he died a few years ago. But he had amazing stories, especially about groupies and stuff. It was great. Um, Dude, but ten, let's talk Terry Knight. What a, He's another one. He was a special fucking person, too. Well, yeah. I mean, Terry Knight, when he left the band, Okay, uh, he, he wasn't out of Mark Farner and Don Brewer's life because once the band Grand Funk was put together, he was very instrumental in getting them off the ground. But at the time when he left uh, the pack, he went on to be like he wanted to be a brief. He had a brief career as, as a cabaret singer. He wanted to be a cabaret singer, but it didn't really work out for him. Uh, the period when Mark Farner had taken over the pack in 67 through 69, they really didn't have any commercial success. They had a few singles. Um, a final tour of the pack in early 69 in the winter uh, left the band stranded in Cape Cod. They got stranded there in a winter storm. They had no way getting back to Michigan. They were stuck there for like two weeks in Cape Cod. Uh, That's the band crazy. broke up in the midst of that. Uh, legend goes that their wives and their girlfriends wanted to kill them for you know being yeah. gone for so long. <laughs> So yeah. basically guys were like, guys were like, listen, I got to be out of the band or I'm getting divorced, you know? So uh, when they broke up, Mark Farner and Don Brewer said, well, you know, let's try to get something going. So they connected with a guy named Mel Shocker. Mel Shocker was a bass player. And at the time, a very young guy, he was only about 18 years old at the time. Uh for the last like two years, he had been playing with Question Mark and the Mysterians. Uh, yeah. You might remember Question Mark and the Mysterians. They had the song 96 Tears. Yeah. Okay. That was the big hit with them. Uh, in 67, Shocker, when he was like 16 years old, was asked to join Question Mark and the Mysterians on the tour following that big hit. So uh, he was a Michigan kid. He was, he was from Flint as well. Um, and, at that point in 69, he was done with question mark. And uh, he was asked by Fauner and Brewer if he would like to start a band. And they got and he was like, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not doing nothing, so why not, okay? Yeah. Uh, they went into the studio, and almost immediately it clicked, all right? They wanted to be a power trio, kind of based off what you were seeing with Cream 
uh, what Jimi Hendrix was doing. All yeah. right, this like three piece guitar, bass, drum, you know, loud, heavy thing. Okay, which is what they were looking to make. Now, they were still friends with Terry Knight, and Terry yeah. Knight had some connections with Capitol Records. All right, and he actually was working for them in some capacity. Uh, they told Terry, listen, come down, check us out. And they came down to the studio and he just realized that just by watching them, that they, they got gold. They had this gold. Is, right. Is, exactly. They yeah. had, he had something big. Uh, they came up with the name Grand Funk Railroad. Now you might say how they come up with that. It's kind of a strange name in Michigan. The railroad? Yeah. yeah in, in, in Michigan, there was a, a railroad system called the Grand Trunk Railroad. And, yeah, and, the Grand Trunk Western Railroad. Exactly, you got it. Grand Trunk Western Railroad. So they they actually, you know, would see this this system railroad system ran through Flint yeah. and other places. So they just changed it to Grand Funk Railroad, yeah. uh, which was kind of interesting to how they did that. Um, then what they did is with some of these first songs for Grand Funk, they kind of had reworked some older pack songs and change them around and, and and they just became like this power trio um like i said terry knew that he had something different and he offered right away to manage them which they accepted uh they kind of viewed terry at this point as a way to get out of flint uh yeah flint michigan Pretty in those much. days was a blue collar town you know basically everybody ended up working in the car factory that's what everybody did uh the only way to get out of flint in those days was if you were in a band and that's why a lot of a, a lot of detroit bands were like that michigan bands i should say whether it was the stooges up in ann arbor or the mc5 okay or these guys several other bands um they spent the next few months in the spring and summer of 69 playing these sporadic gigs but they were having a problem getting gigs around michigan because a lot of people just thought that they were really just a pack all right it was they they were like oh that's just two guys from the pack we've seen that before terry knight's their manager it's the same shit yeah so same shit yeah, yeah. but they were quite different in july of 69 they were actually offered to play the atlanta international pop festival uh, and this would change them forever. They were playing along, uh, alongside some bands like Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago, Canned Heat, Janis Joplin, Johnny Winter, Spirit, and Led Zeppelin. Very early Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They were so popular at this festival that they ended up getting signed by Capitol Records. And uh, it's kind of a legendary event at that festival because there's a story where Fauner took his shirt off and everybody yeah. everybody went crazy and the girls were taking their shirts off after him at the show. Yeah, so, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Terry Knight knew he had gold with gotta, these guys. And Mike, you gotta remember these guys were kids and they yeah. playing they were probably playing that 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 uh, an answer thing was that was probably the biggest audience and people lost their shit over them. People were like, what the fuck? What is this? Yeah. They were jamming and yeah. that was like a vibe. Yeah, that was a total vibe. People had never really heard of them. They, were, they weren't they were signed. They hadn't had anything yeah. out. And they just, you know, came busting out of Michigan and playing in Atlanta. And it was, you know, if you look at the, the bands they were playing alongside, okay, bands like Chicago, 
even Janis Joplin. You know, the only band that huge, that could even they, they were lighter. You know, they were Joplin was heavy in some ways, but bands like you know Chicago, okay, they weren't heavy like Grand Funk. And it was just like they must have sounded like monsters. Maybe Zeppelin was the only other one that would even have a close sound to them. Um, like I said, Knight uh, knew he had gold, but he knew he had to promote this band in a different kind of way. Uh, the way he started in his promotion was he kind of likened them to Cream. All right. They would kind of yeah. say that they were like, you know, the next coming of a power trio like Cream. Um Right away after doing this pop festival in Atlanta, getting signed to Capitol, they, they, they would lead immediately to recording an album. Uh, their debut album was called On Time, and it came out in uh, August 25th, 1969, produced by Terry Knight. The first single was a song called Time Machine, and that peaked at number 48. A song called Heartbreaker was the second single. That really didn't make a splash. But these guys had a lot of music and they were ready to record a second album almost immediately. And this became the album called Grand Funk, also known as the Red Album. The Red Album. All right. But hey, you want to talk about On Time? I On Time went on to also over a million albums. It was a go album. Right. But I wanted to get into the Red Album right away you know? because the Red yeah. Album, the, the hits, the way this broke out is the, oh, yeah. the Red Incredible. Album actually propelled on time into a gold status it really hadn't yeah. made a splash but you know for, for some reason the red album really connected when it came to you know commercial sales and they people were realizing oh wow they just released a, another album so people went and got that okay um yeah. it would push on time into that gold status by 1970 um yeah now one thing about grand funk railroad that was becoming apparent right in the beginning is critics didn't like them. And radio... No, they got panned. Yeah, they radio... Got they got no no radio play that No, all. radio wouldn't play them at first. Um, the first two albums were gold by February of 1970. Now, think about that. The first album two released in albums. August of 69, right? February of 70, they now have two albums out and they're both gold. No, no, yeah. no, no commercialism, really. No, like... You know, some promotion that Terry Knight was doing, but nothing uh, substantial as far as airplay. People weren't hearing about this band. Critics didn't like nah. them. Cream, Cream liked them. Cream would Cream yeah. would give them news. Rolling Stone and all the other labels panned them. Um, and, you know, On Time was released two months, okay? I mean, I mean I'm sorry, the Red Album was released two months after the first one. So, crazy. yeah, I mean, it's just like they, they really kind of came in. It's almost like a double album in a way at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to be honest with you, the Red Album, I think, is my favorite album from them. That's uh, a good album. It's just a, a solid, heavy album in the sense of like the MC5 or the Stooges, uh, probably like the Stooges Funhouse album. It reminds me of a little bit. Uh, there was a track called Got This Thing on the Move. Uh, that's a great song. Yep, that's the, it opens with that. Please uh, Don't Worry. Right. Now, that was co-written by Don Brewer, that song. He had some yeah. his, his writing status in that. And and really, a, a, a huge hit off it was the, the Animals cover, Inside Looking Out. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, the album would make number 11 on the Billboard charts, and it would actually go top 10 in Canada. Again, no, no radio airplay, strictly no. word of mouth, a real underground kind of you know thing happening here with this band. Mike, um, let me ask you a question. What do you think when these motherfucker bands spend $100,000 to put a fucking billboard in Times Square? How fucking crazy is that? Yeah, yeah, that would come up on a, on the next album. <laughs> uh, yeah. $100,000, dude. Yep, to have their faces lined up, okay? Dude, that's like a million dollars almost. Like, with the inflation, that's like pay- close to like... It paid off. It paid yeah, off. It? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, Terry Knight... Understood how to promote this band. They were they were a people's band. They weren't played on the radio that much, but everybody yeah. was buying their records, and you know they were connecting with people on a on a on a grassroots kind of level. They weren't hit over the head. People weren't like hearing commercials for the new Grand Funk song or new yeah, album. Nah. You know, it was strictly strictly word of mouth. Um, hey, what band? What band were they opening up for? That they had a huge problem. Oh, I'm going to talk about that right now. You read my mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, now in in '69, uh, late '69, they they were still an opening act. All right, pretty yeah. much. Uh, Ze- Zeppelin was coming through. Led Zeppelin, and coming through Detroit, and they needed an opening band to play at C- Cabo Hall, which is a famous spot in Detroit. Uh, in the late summer of '69, Grand Funk was asked. To do its, uh, you know, to open for Zeppelin, of course they accepted because they were making, you know, Zeppelin was taken off at that point with the first album. Yeah. Um, this was right before the Red album had come out. Okay, and they were doing songs from it live. The crowd, okay, was going crazy. They uh, lost their shit. Yeah, they were going <laughs> crazy for Grand Funk. Zeppelin was going to be headlining. Grand Funk was opening up. Now Peter Grant, who was the manager of Zeppelin. Didn't like this too much, all right, at this show. He was seeing that the crowd was going crazy for Grand Funk. How do you go on stage after that? Yeah. All right. And, that, you know, that's, you know, you're upstaging Zeppelin, and he wasn't going to have anything of that. So he went up to Terry Knight, manager of the, of Grand Funk, and, oh, and, and got, got grabbed him by the throat. Now, Peter Grant was a huge guy who used to be a wrestler. Yeah. And he picked him up by the throat. And told him, get Grand Funk off the stage now. All right. Knight was shaken up. Okay. And he went and they pulled the plug in the middle of no, them. He, doing, in the middle he of, had to tell him twice. He had well, yeah, he actually had to. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he was shook up, but he didn't do anything. But then he grabbed him again and he said, yo, get him off the Immediately. Now. Yeah, he's right. Immediately. So they pulled, they pulled the plug on, on Grand Funk in the middle of them doing Inside Looking Out. Uh, and and, and, uh, and uh, Terry Knight came out on stage and told the whole crowd. This is great, I think. He told yeah, the whole I, crowd I that Led Zeppelin was afraid to go out, to go out after Grand Funk Railroad. All right. And the crowd just started booing and just lost their, lost shit. their shit. They didn't continue. OK, uh, there was another band that went on briefly after that did their set. Uh, Zeppelin waited like another hour or something to go on. They ended up playing to a half full house. Half the people had left. OK, after after Grand Funk. All right. So they blew Zeppelin off the stage. 
yeah in 1969 uh it's just one of those one of those things you know now by june 1970 grand funk would release the monster album closer to home all right uh it's another heavy terry knight produced album and this would have the hit single i'm your captain all right great song yeah uh that that song propelled the album to uh uh you know number six actually on the charts the single i'm your captain closer to home in parentheses i'm your captain uh would make it to number 22 on the charts it was an actually actually it was an anti-war song yeah uh, anti-vietnam war song it connected a lot with a lot of people that had been in the service uh you know when they were away on uh, Armed Forces Radio, it was always requested. Okay, it was a big hit in Vietnam for the Armed Forces. Um, now yeah, the inf- um, this guy, the lead singer, was kind of really into um, politics and stuff like that. So he was very, um, a lot of his music was like pretty much political and a lot of things well, about what's going on. They did, you know? they, they, they did go there. Uh, this is an example. They have a couple of other songs. Okay, yeah. that that go there, but I wouldn't say I, I I never thought of them as a very political band. Uh not as political as say the MC Five. Oh no, not All like right. that. But they were they were they, the guy could touch something. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm your captain. No that doubt, totally. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Mark Farner was anti-war. The band was anti-war. Yeah. Okay, they made that clear. Uh, but it wasn't that every song they did was political. You know, they just no. occasionally would bring it up in different songs. Now, the, the the cool thing about the the Closer to Home album is on the inside cover, there's a, a picture of them playing Madison Square Garden on the inside. It's a cool <laughs> picture of them. Now, other popular tracks on that album are uh, Sins of a Good Man's Brother and Nothing is the Same. Those would always be fan favorites on that album. Terry Knight, this is when they went on the heavy promotional blitz, okay? Uh, they invested 100000 like you mentioned before, on that billboard in Times yeah. Square. And it would pay off because the album would go multi-platinum eventually. And uh, it was it was gold, I think, right off the bat within a few like, yeah. weeks. You know? And it was critic critic approve also. A lot of the critics mm-hmm. really liked this one. Not, not, not that much. They, they really wouldn't get... You know, they would get some with this album. Yeah, uh, but this was a lot more. This was a lot more well taken than other album that they had. You know, it's possible. I think you know, maybe a little bit. All right, but but to be honest with you, through most of their career, they never got a lot of critical acclaim. The, I think the most critical acclaim they ever got was the album they did with Zappa. All right, which we'll get into later on. Yeah. Um, in November of nineteen seventy. They released uh, the album Grand Funk Live, all right? And and this was a live album, a double live album. The cover showed the band live on stage, like live in the on stage at the Atlanta International Pop Festival of 1970. They were asked to come back again the following year from the first time. And the picture from there is, is on the album. But that's not where they recorded it. They recorded uh, tracks in Florida at the Jacksonville Jackson, yeah, Jacksonville uh, Coliseum. Uh, that was from sh- a show in June 23rd, 1970. Two tracks on the album, Paranoid and Inside Looking Out, were actually recorded at the West Palm Beach Auditorium the following day on June 24th. Uh, 
The track Heartbreaker on there, it's interesting. They don't know where it's from. It's actually recorded. <laughs> it's, either, it's either recorded at the West Palm Beach or the uh, Jacksonville Coliseum. They don't know. But critics panned this live album, Rob. They didn't like it. Okay. Uh, no, Robert Christigal, okay, panned it. He said, yeah, you know, they have a cult following, a great following, but that doesn't translate into a live album. And I couldn't disagree more with that guy, okay, when it comes to this. I was listening to this album last night. I hadn't heard it in many years. Uh, it, what, you know, what I think is great is there's a lot of, um, a lot of interaction with the crowd that usually people leave out on live albums, you know, you might get people, you know, what they say to the crowd, what the band says and, you know, but they don't like the, the introduction uh, is in the first song really is, is them just setting up. So it's kind of cool in a way. It's different, different kind of live album. Uh, it got to number five, despite being panned by the critics. And interestingly enough, this live album would cross over into the R and B charts. And it was the only album they had that did that. Uh, it's an anomaly. Uh, I, not too often rock albums would, would cross over into R&B. Uh, yeah, that... but, but it actually got to number 17. All right. So you now you had a, when you say R&B, you're really talking like a black audience listening to that. Yeah. All right. Uh, probably that had to do with Michigan and Detroit and the popularity that they were having there. Um and it got to but number they were, seven. They were, they were funky, you know? They were like a funky. Well, you know, they were very yeah. funky. Now look, they were, they, they were heavy on top of heavy, you know? Yeah. They, they, they had some songs that went there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Come on. Now, the album, that album, uh, the double live album, would go gold within two weeks. And the two tracks, Heartbreaker and Inside Looking Out, uh, were starting to do well on FM radio stations. Um, the, the the song Inside Looking Out on the live album is like a drug reference about getting high. So AM stations, AM top 40 stations weren't going to play it. But FM, which was a new thing in 1970, okay, uh, they would play the tracks that, you know, the longer songs and live tracks, deeper cuts that top 40 didn't play. So they were becoming wow. a hit. They were becoming a hit on Grand Funk. Yeah, I mean, there was a time, it's very interesting, there was a time you know, where you had the AM stations playing music and FM was brand new. And what you were hearing with like college radio was on FM. Okay. And they were playing up and coming bands, or if they were playing the popular stuff, they would play the album tracks, not the singles. It's a, it was a very interesting time in, in, in rock music. Cause it was kind of like FM was almost like an alternative source for music that you normally wouldn't hear, you know? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, after a successful tour and good album sales, Grand Funk went back into the studio with Terry Knight at the helm again to cut Survival. Yeah. That was released in April of 71, and it featured a great version of the Stones' Gimme Shelter. And That uh, is a great version. Yeah, yeah. I think, to me, it's like the second best. You got the original and then right after it. Um, it was originally, it, it was eventually released as a single, that version. Uh, there was a song called Country Road, Feeling All Right, uh, I Want Freedom. Okay, that was a little bit of a political song. They yeah. were all popular tracks off that album. 
The album cover had them looking like cavemen. Okay. <laughs> and the inside the album, you, there were three eight by 10 photos of each member, one of each. Uh, and they were all looking like kind of like the cavemen on the album cover. Eventually, this album would, would get to number six on Billboard. Touring was a constant with this band. Okay. Yeah. And on July 9th, 1971, they would play what was probably one of their most famous shows ever at Shea Stadium here in Queens. Yeah. Um, they ended up they breaking sold it out. Yeah. They sold out the stadium. They broke the Beatles record for Shea Stadium. Okay. From 1965. Uh, Grand Funk sold out 55,000 seats, which was a, the most Shea Stadium had in yep. 72 hours. And the Beatles, it took a couple of weeks to do that. All right. So they had beat them. And that record held until the demolition of, of Sta uh, Shea Stadium in 2008. No one had ever beat that. The great story of it, it's, it's legendary. Um, Humble Pie was opening for them. And yeah. <laughs> Grand Funk Railroad was, was going to be brought in on helicopter. And Humble Pie was on stage playing. When Grand Funk flew in. Now, Mark Farner has said that they had the side door to the helicopter open and they could see and hear Humble Pie as they were landing in the parking lot. And they could tell <laughs> they could tell the stadium was rocking so much that it was moving. And and I know exactly what he's talking about because I yeah. I was at many baseball games and I did see the, the, the I did see the clash and the who there in eighty two. And I did see the Stones there in 88 um, and many baseball games because I am a Mets fan. And it, when that when that place was rocking, you could feel the, the, you know, the seats going up and down. And at one point, I think during this concert, like the, there were people that were concerned that the place was going to collapse. All right. That's how much. Yeah. Shaking. <laughs> but the, the, the story goes that when they landed in the parking lot, there was supposed to be a limo there to meet them to bring them onto the field. Okay. So humble pie finished their set. And as, as, as basically grand funk landed and there was no limo there, no limo showed up. So somebody ran out of the helicopter, one of the roadies or whatever, and, and called, made a call from a payphone, And immediately, I think they called the police directly immediately squad cars rolled up, and they escorted the band onto the field in the in the police cars. That's so, unbelievable. Yeah. So you had the you know you had the bullpen fences opening up. You had the you know a couple of squad cars, lights flashing, sirens going on, and all of a sudden Grand Funk Railroad comes out of the police cars. The fucking stadium. <laughs> the stadium went ape shit. Okay. I mean, if you were there, I mean, I've, I've met a couple people over the years that were at this show. And they've always said it was the most like amazing thing that they've ever seen. Um, and keep in mind too, at this point, the band hadn't had a number one hit yet. Okay. A single. And they were still selling kind of word of mouth with no critical acclaim and not a lot of radio airplay. They sold out 55,000 seats at Shea stadium quicker than the Beatles. So without a doubt, they were a people's band without a doubt. Um, the next album would be called E Pluribus Funk. Okay. And that was released on November 15th, 1971. Was, was, 
What's the meaning of that? Well, you know the exp- the Latin expression "e pluribus unum," like from from many yeah. co- from many come one. Okay, yeah, because that's, that's the album, like with the go with the coin, right? With yeah. The weird, well, if, like... well, if you ever looked on a coin, it says that "e, plu- oh, e, e pluribus unum." Yeah, I think it's on like dimes and nickels and stuff like that. And uh, very, very, it's a very uh, unique packaging on this album. I like how they did this. They made it look like a coin, so it was round, and you were buying a round record, okay, instead, yeah. of, a, instead of a square record sleeve. And it was wrapped up in a shiny material. Uh, one side of it, the band's heads, the three in a row, uh, were on it. And on the other side was a picture like a, uh, almost like a die cast metal looking picture of Shea Stadium. <laughs> so, and that actually was Terry Knight's idea, I've heard. Not bad, yeah, not yeah. bad. Now the tracks on this album were good. Uh, Foot Stomping Music, uh, Save the Land, People Let Stop the War. Uh, this album would get to number five. All right, so they were they were starting to creep up there, and really be more popular after that Shea Stadium gig, and then a couple of months later, this album coming out. The band by late '71, however, uh, they were starting to realize that they had nothing to show for all this popularity, and the money was coming in. The money was coming in, but they were on salary. Yeah. Uh, Mark Farner has said they were making about three fifty a week. Uh, which That's was good insane. money for that time, but they should have been making more. Uh, they were concerned about how Terry Knight was managing the band, especially the financial end of it. All right. Uh, and, you know, he had put the money into a kind of an LLC kind of thing. And he yeah. was investing in oil wells and some other investments. Um, and, and some of them didn't work out. Some wells they were involved with ended up being dry wells. They lost their money. Yeah. But um, in, in early 72, it all came to a head and they fired Terry Knight very abruptly. All right. And, and, and Knight himself, he countersued for breach of contract. Now, yeah. um, each side really kind of dug in and it became, this became a popular story in the papers and magazines uh, about what was going on in Grand Funk. It was actually written about how they were fighting with their manager. They they were suing their manager. The manager was suing back. Uh, and what happens is when you have this kind of lawsuit, it freezes everything. It freezes your assets. Uh, and, you know, apparently, and Terry Knight says this, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but he always said that the contract with him would have been up if they'd waited three more months. Yeah. He, he said that a few times that yeah. it would have been over. Now, the I never heard, just... I've never heard Mark Farner confirm this might be true, but whatever it was, if it was true, they felt that they had to get rid of Knight right away uh, just for their own well being. So there might've been other things going on here that we don't know about. Um, yeah. But uh, at one point in 1972, amid a lot of press about what was going on. The band had a gig at Madison Square Garden. And immediately after the gig, luckily it didn't happen before, immediately after the gig, Terry Knight showed up. Okay, they already, had a, new, they already had a new manager at that point. He shows up with a legal team, 
And, and the marshals. Yeah, with the marshals, the sheriffs from New York, and just they confiscate all their equipment. That's insane. All right, everything, the instruments, everything, okay? Um, Knight has said that he claimed, you know, he said many times that he poured his heart and soul into this band from the beginning, invested their money into, you know, business deals that they knew about, all right? Um, but not all of them had worked out. Uh, he claimed that he never ripped them off in any way, okay? Now, this fight would go on for almost two years, but it would be settled out of court. And it really all fell in, in Terry Knight's favor. He would get the copyright and publishing royalties for all of their albums between 1969 and 72. Yeah. He'd, get, he'd get a large cash payout, and he would get control of the oil wells they invested in. Now, Farner, Shocker, and Brewer were only given rights to the name Grand Funk Railroad. So basically, they had to start over. And that debt... That deal, as far as I know, exists to this day. Terry Knight goes to the bank all the time. I'm sure he gets royalty checks from the first several albums by Grand Funk. Okay. Oh, yeah, he definitely. And these, and these guys don't get anything. Uh, but they settled out of court, and that's what they agreed to. So they did start over. Um, and, and, and again, this is a rags to riches to rags and back to riches story. Yeah. Because they would make some changes. And it would all be successful to, to, for them. Um, they would start off with adding ex-PAC member Craig Frost on keyboards. Yeah, okay. keyboard. Now, yeah. Originally, they wanted Peter Frampton to join the band, but he wasn't available. He was already under contract. Um, they, they, they really liked Humble Pie a lot. They liked Frampton. Um, they would release now their, their, their self-produced sixth studio album called Phoenix. And it was called Phoenix because of like rising from the ashes. Yeah, uh, it was released. It was a pretty in, good album. Yes, yeah, very good album. It was released in 1972, September. Um, it, the album would actually get to number seven, and it had some yeah. fan favorites on it, like Rock and Roll Soul. That's a great track. Uh, yeah. You got to move me. I just got to know. And Freedom is for Children. Um, yeah, Freedom is for Children is a great song. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, being. Being Grand Funk, uh, they, 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 were, they were prolific, and they had another album ready to come out. But this time, they would bring in Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren was known for his, his productions. Uh, he was known to bring a little bit of a more polished sound, which I think they were looking to do intentionally. Uh, in June of 73, they went into the Criteria Studios in Miami with Rundgren, and they recorded the album Wear an American Band. Uh, what a great song. Yeah. Now, this would be the monster song that yeah. they would be remembered for the most. Don Brewer, the drummer, actually wrote the song. All right. Yep. He came up with it, and uh, which makes sense with all the drums in the beginning, you know. Um, uh, basically, it's a song about a rock band's life on the road. Uh, yeah. Everybody knows that song. He would, you know, they would name check. Various we various people, uh, including famous groupies that they knew on the on the road. Okay, like Sweet Connie and all that stuff. Uh, this would go to this amazing Brewer and Mark uh, Don and Mark wrote a lot of the songs for most of the right for them. Like they were their own music writers, right? Yeah, yeah. And in this kind yeah. of second incarnation of Grand Funk. I think it, yeah. I think Brewer asserted himself a lot 
in the writing. Like the, this album, uh, the next couple, Brewer, Brewer started to write a lot more songs or in the co-writing process with, with Fauna. Yeah. Where, where this, more of the first, like the Red album is, is mostly Fauna. And we, yeah. No. And then this one was good because they had another hit, uh, Walk Like a Man was good Walk too. Like a Man was another single. That was always a popular track off of We're an American Band. Um, Ain't Got Nobody, Stop Looking yep. Back. Uh, you know, it was a very popular album. Obviously got to number one, not number two, excuse me, number yes. two. Uh, the song We're an American Band would make number one. Now, they continued talking. Let me ask you a, let me ask you a quick question. Yeah. Um that wanted to ask you with that with all these albums coming out, right? They and and um they took back the name. Did Terry Knight make any money off these albums? No, no. it was strictly everything between sixty nine and seventy two. So the, the so these albums, everything went to them. They didn't have to split the royalty or anything. Right. So it was, they it kept was, most as of soon the as they came out with Phoenix, okay, yeah. they didn't have to give anything to Terry Knight. Phoenix and after that. Okay, and I got and I got one more. I got one more question. With, with all this going on, right? Um, how would they? How would they doing? Were they like? Did were they broke or were they just coming well, no, back? No, I, 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 I mean they, they might have been broke going into. I, I don't think they were ever broke, broke, but they they okay. had they had lost. Uh, they didn't lose the record deal with Capital. Okay, that was still there. Yeah. So they had this. They had. They they knew that uh, Capital knew they could make money with them, so they weren't going to give up on them. Uh, if you think about it, the first album that Terry Knight was not involved with was Phoenix. That came out in yeah. September of '72. They had just given Knight a big cash payout, gave him the the royalties from everything before that. But that album got to, that album got to number seven, so they they made a lot back. And then Wearing American uh, Band would would be a number one hit. So I think they they yeah. probably recouped everything, okay. And why why did they do so many covers for a band that wrote so many? Why did they do so many covers? Also, like they did a lot of covers. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, album. yeah, they did a lot of covers. Uh, that was in those days. That was more people did that more often than they do now. Yeah. Uh, you know, later on, I mean, the next album, okay, called Shining On. They, they, they would, they, they would, right now that would be, um, they would continue touring through 73, but then they would go into the studio in 74 with Rungren again to do Shining On. And that, you talk about covers, that had one of their, yeah, one the of their biggest, right, one of their biggest hits was Locomotion off that album. And that was the old Little Eva song that was originally written by Carol King. Uh, that yeah. got, that got <laughs> to number one. Okay. Uh, I think I think especially Michigan bands like to do covers. Okay, if you were a band in the '60s out of Detroit uh, or you know the, the other cities, Ann Arbor, Flint, you always did a lot of covers, a lot of R&B covers, stuff like yeah. that were big to do. They came from that background. Uh, the interesting thing about Shining On, I always liked this about the album, is the covers in 3D. So you had to you what you had to wear special glasses that came with the album to listen to it. I mean to 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 look at it. Uh not to listen to it, just to look at it. Um it, it, the single locomotion um had a non-album B-side called Destitute and Losing, okay, which became a, a popular song by them. 
Uh, the second single, Shining On, would do well and make it to number 11 on the charts. The album itself would make num- make it to number one, Shining On. So that would... Wow. Right. Uh, the band would tour the United States, Europe, and Japan for the remainder of 1974. Um, they would immediately start working in the studio again on a new album called All the Girls in the World Beware. All right. Uh, and it was released in December 1974 with producer Jimmy Leonard at the helm. Uh, Jimmy Leonard was known for working with the Raspberries, Three Dog Night, and the Bay City Rollers. Okay. Yeah, wow. the album, which, you know, you kind of laugh at that now, but people forget the, the, the selling power of the Bay City Rollers in, the, in 1974, 75. It was huge. Um, this is the cover with like all the muscle guys, right? All the guys yeah. were like, flexing. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they put their uh, they they put their head on Schwarzenegger's body or something like that. I, th- I think that's the album. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, what yeah, it yeah. Is. yeah. <laughs> now, this, this would give this album, uh, all the girls in the world beware, would would give them their last two top ten singles they would ever have, which would be some kind of wonderful. Everybody knows that song. And great, track, great yeah, song. track called "Bad Time." Uh, between late '74 and early '75, those songs were hits. Now, by '75, the band was actually starting to drift apart. Uh, members were kind of disagreeing more and more on the musical direction of the band. Uh, disco was a big sound of the day, and Mark Farner was on record saying he would never do a disco song. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it actually, th- this is a common problem for a lot of popular rock bands in 75, 76. Disco was so huge that rock and roll sales were down. Rock band sales were down. And a lot of rock bands didn't know how to deal with this. Okay. I'm talk- I mean, nah. you know, if you were like, uh, you know, more of an underground band, you just kind of did your thing and you, you weren't expecting to to make money. But if you were like a, a grand funk railroad kind of band, you had that temptation to, to do a disco song. All right. And, you know, guys like, uh, by the end of the seventies, I mean, guys like Rod Stewart and even the Rolling Stones, they had gone disco. Okay. Uh, with a song or two and kiss even did it. With I was made for loving you by the end of the 70s. So, you know, you had that temptation to do that. And I always thought it was cool that Farner said we would never do that. Um, yeah. Now, contractually at this point, the band had two more albums to make for Capital. So they decided to do a double album. And, you know, in the past, that would usually have been enough with a record label. But what happened is uh, this album called Caught in the Act uh, which is a decent live album. Uh, it would be, it would come out in August of 75. Uh, it would make it to number 21 on Billboard. But Capitol felt that because so many of the tracks had been released in the past, that it really didn't count as a double album for them contractually. So they were giving Grand Funk a little bit of a hard time with this. Um, they didn't want to have any more problems. So they said, okay, we'll make one more album for you. They didn't want to go through any legal problems that they had gone through before. Uh, The interesting thing about this album, uh, the Court in the Act double album, it actually got to number 21, which is not bad. 
especially for a live, especially yeah. for a live album in the time. Uh, and yeah. it featured this backup female group called the Funkettes. So it's a little bit of a different sound. You have some female backing vocals on the songs, which they didn't have before. Uh, but again, Capitol viewed this not really as a, a completion of their contract. So they would get together to do one more song, uh, one more, uh, one more album. And it would be called Born to Die, ironically. Uh, the album proved to not be as popular. All right. It only got to number 47. The cover of the album showed them all in coffins. And Fauna really didn't really like that cover too much. Uh, yeah. I listened to this album last night and I wasn't I wasn't familiar with it. I only knew like what the, the title track, I think, off it. And what was it? Born, Born to, to Die. die yeah, it's 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 not a bad album. It's not a bad album at all. Uh, it's kind of it, it. It reminded me if you've ever listened to the Alice Cooper, the original Alice Cooper band's album "Muscle of Love," and that was their last album as the the official uh, original Alice Cooper band. They didn't really have much theatrics with this album. The band had wanted to pare everything down into uh, simple songs. They didn't want to have big theatrics like they had on their last few albums. So when you listen to Muscle of Love in comparison to the stuff that came out before, you go, it's a good album. It's not really Alice Cooper, but it's a good album. And I felt the same with Grand Funk listening to Born to Die. Uh, if any fans that that, that hear this uh, want to talk about that with me, private message me. I thought it was kind of like Grand Funk, but not Grand Funk, but still a good album. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. But I, I, yeah exactly I, and I thought it was it was interesting. Now, um, this album it bombed. It got to only number forty seven. Yeah, uh, they were done with their contract now with Capital, and they were big. But they still took out one more album, the good singer. I'm talking. Yeah, I'm getting into that right now because what they would do is they would break up for a, a short time, but they were hearing how Frank Zappa wanted to work with them. So they decided to reform uh, and they signed a one record deal with MCA Records. Now, if you remember our, la yeah. you know, our episode last week with Zappa, he had gotten involved with MCA at that same time. So he, he, he was putting feelers out there to Grand Funk saying, I want to do an album with you. And they agreed. Um, this would become the album Good Singing, Good Playing. And a lot of people thought like this pairing of Zappa with Grand Funk would be a disaster. But it actually, the band enjoyed working with him because Zappa had, despite his uh, eccentricness that everybody knows about, uh, he, he was very, when it came to playing rock and roll, he liked to keep it really simple. And that was a way that Grand Funk made their records too. Uh, not, a, not a ton of, a, a lot of overdubs. Probably the most polished stuff they ever did was the stuff they did with, with Todd Rundgren. Okay. And that, yeah. of course they had number ones with that. So I'm not putting that down, but when it comes to their sound, you know, the heaviest stuff that they did was produced by Terry Knight early on. Okay. Uh, but with this good singing, good playing Zappa was, was behind the desk. Uh, he would actually play lead guitar on a track called out to get you. Um, but you know, this was only going to be a one one off thing because when they were finishing mixing the final product, Grand Funk told Zappa they would break it up again. And Zappa 
supposedly spent like a whole night till four o'clock in the morning trying to convince them not to break up, but they didn't listen and they called it quits. And yeah, now quits. this album, Good Singing, Good Playing, it's worth a listen. I listened to it recently. I'd never heard it before. Uh, it got to only number 52. But here's the thing. Critically, it was a success. Okay? The critics loved this album. They gave it some of the best reviews that they'd ever gotten on any of their albums before that. But it didn't do anything for the record sales. It didn't really connect with the fans. So the band, by this time in late 76, was broken up. Uh, there were other things going on with the band. Personal problems. Don Brewer's wife had died. Okay? So that was a big problem. Yeah. Uh, he actually was the one that broke up the band. A lot of people think it was Fawner. But Brewer came in one day and said, I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. And, and that yeah, pretty much home. ended it. Now, Fawner would start a solo career at that point. But the remaining guys uh, would, would start a band called Flint. Okay. And they would come out with, I think, about one or two albums. Uh, I think the second one actually was never released, but the first one was. Um, by 1980, ex-manager Andy Cavalieri, he was the guy that took over when Terry Knight had left, okay, uh, back in 72. He approached them in 1980 about a possible reunion. Now, Frost was not available because he had gone off to play with Bob Seger at that point. But Shocker himself the bass player he didn't want to do it all right so fauner and don brewer and they got a replacement bass player named dennis bellinger reunited grand funk railroad and made two albums uh one in 1981 yeah. called grand funk lives and, and in 83 yeah. they would release an album called what's funk now neither one of these did well okay but an interesting little side note is if you remember the movie heavy metal the animated film. There's a track yeah. by Grand Funk Railroad from this period called Queen B that made it onto the soundtrack. Okay. And it's not a bad song, but it, yeah, it's not yeah. great. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not great. Now yeah. they toured through 81 and 82 a lot with this lineup. Uh, they had added a keyboardist named Rick Baker, um, but yep. there would be problems and, and tragedy during this time as well, because Andy Cavalieri, their manager, would suddenly die in 1982. And the band kind of gave up after that. Like once he was out of the picture, they didn't want to continue any, anymore. Uh, Brewer would go on to join Frost in Bob Seeger's band. Okay. Yeah, the Silver yep. Bullet Silver band. band. Right. And Farner would go in a completely different direction and start doing Christian rock. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he had gone through life changes. He became a born again Christian, I believe. Um, and, you know, went in that direction for a while. Um, he would do a stint in 1995 with uh, Ringo Starr and uh, the All-Star Band. Okay. He would be involved with that. Now, right after that, Grand Funk would reunite again in 1995-96 with the three original members. Uh, they got together. Uh, I, I believe, thinking wasn't in Michigan. It might have been. I don't recall. Uh, but they did get together and practice. And after just a couple of short rehearsals, they realized they still could do it. They still had a band. Uh, they went on a short 14-day tour 
okay, and played in front of 250,000 people. Now, that, yeah, in that time, insane. so there was still an audience by 1995, 96 for Grand Funk. Um, the, this kind of parlayed into some other shows where, uh, for instance, there was a show for Bosnia, uh, Charity Relief for Bosnia in 1997. And they played with a full symphonic orchestra. And it, the orchestra was conducted by Paul Schaefer. All right. So this was actually recorded uh, as a live two, two CD set called Bosnia. All right. And at one point during the during the uh, the recording, Peter Frampton shows up on stage and does some songs with them. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So awesome. in 98, Mark Farner would leave Grand Funk Railroad. And the remaining band did go on. OK, without him. Uh, they, they, yeah, they got a new lease. Yeah, they ended up picking up Max Carl, who was uh, the, the, the singer to 38 Special. And uh, yeah, never liked that band. <laughs> and uh, then he, they also picked up a guitarist, uh, Bruce Kulik, who had played with Kiss. OK, in yeah. the 80s. Uh, they picked up a guy named Tim Cashin, brought in on keyboards. And occasionally this lineup still plays today. OK, I don't think Farner's yeah. been involved with them anymore at that point. Uh, they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're in the Michigan Hall of Fame. Yeah, they are in the Michigan Rock and Roll Legend Hall of Fame. I think in 2005 or so they got in there, I believe. Yeah. 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 But again, uh, they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and we just had yesterday, we just had the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. For this year, get in. Yeah. T Rex got in. I was very happy about that. The rest, I don't give, give a I shit. Gotta, I gotta say, let me tell you, I did like. You know what? I gotta say, I, I did like that. The notorious Biggie Small. Cause let me tell you, out of any rapper I ever heard, I, I, I to this day I still remember listening his voice. Oh, on he's the one radio, of the best. Coming he's on the radio, best. and I was like, holy yeah, he's, shit! Who the fuck is? I was like, who the no, fuck no, no. Is I this? mean, I mean, when it holy comes shit. when it comes to rap music, and I'm not a. a <laughs> Big, big fan, but I, I have respect for, for some of it. And Notorious oh, B.I.G. was, was one of the best. He deserves to be recognized, but I have a problem yeah. when you start having things that are not rock and roll in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. But, but, I oh, mean, yeah, you know, Madonna's in there, okay? So to me, it, 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 it's not about that, okay? It's, it's more, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is just a top 40 thing. Mm. But occasionally they do get it right, and T-Rex got in this year, so that was a good thing. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I like them. Not. I like T Rex. I like, you know what? Uh, Biggie Small might have not been rock and roll, but he was a thing of the music that really changed the yeah. music. So to him to be like in the rock and roll hall of fame is it's not rock and roll, but it's pretty much it should be like the music hall of fame. Right. Well, call it that then. But you know what I'm saying? It's, it's you know what? You know I don't have a problem with Biggie Small, but, he, but you know just. Let me tell you, he was definitely something different and anybody that could, you didn't have to even like rap, but you oh, yeah. heard that voice and you were like, who the no, no, fuck no, is no this? No doubt, no doubt, I agree. <laughs> definitely agree. Okay, so that's like all I got for you today, Mr. Rossi. I hope everybody liked it. Oh, Fans, God. fan requested show. That was a great fucking show, but man, these guys went up, down. We didn't even get to the fucking part where they were getting sued by the oil rig. Oh, yeah. The taxes yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, I didn't want to get into the whole IRS I issues, mean, but yeah. But holy yeah, shit, they, man. Talk about this. Yeah, I mean, they, they, oh, the they got, yeah, they, at, at one point, uh, they were getting hit with 
lawsuits from uh, the IRS back, you know, back yeah. payments related That's- to oil wells that went bust. I mean, it, it was a disaster. Oh my yeah. god, yeah. But look, you know, they, the it's music all- stands for these Mike, guys. We can- you know, the music stands for everything with yeah. these guys. Yeah. Mike, we could do a whole show of how many uh, bands that the IRS oh, came after from the Rolling Stones to everybody else. <laughs> what a disaster. The oh, show yeah, definitely. <laughs> Marvin Gaye, too, right? Remember that? Yeah, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, holy shit. Oh, I just want to, I just found out that Alex Trebet passed away from Jeopardy. Oh. 80 years old. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. Well, by the time this so is, we don't see yeah, by the time one. this is yeah. up in December, it'll be old news, but. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, okay, uh, do a little tribute to him today. I want to mention. Yeah. Uh, I so, want to um, mention one other thing. Um, you know, we always record ahead of time, so you're not going to hear this show until the second week of December. But um, yes. I'm getting involved with Parlor, the other social media site. I have. Uh, I'm on Parlor yeah. under Rocker Mike. Okay, so I just want to mention that uh, I'm going to start using that a little bit. I'm a. Pa- I'm a part of two, but yeah, I, I, I just much. signed up like two weeks ago, and I'm trying to figure out the format. I'm not crazy about it, but I definitely want to use it to advertise the shows. And and it seems like it's a social media platform that's not being censored. Uh, while we're recording this now in November, I'm in my third week of being banned from Facebook, and I'm sick of this shit. I'm really sick of it, uh, and I'm tired of of you know. The warnings they put up on things, um, you know, it's I don't want to get into all of it, but it's just yeah. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move over to Parlor. I'm not gonna leave Facebook yet. Oh, maybe I might not leave it at all, but definitely gonna have some things going on. You'll hear more about it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know exactly. Yeah, what I'm doing. Facebook just use it to promote the show. Don't even put nothing on it, like I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other groups that I have, the, the some of the political groups I've been getting in trouble for. Uh, the, that's the reasons probably why I got banned. They never tell me. They always say, "Oh, it's a comment you did in 2019 that was against their standards." Mike, but they never it's tell not me that. Why. It's somebody that reports you. That's all it is. Anytime you it get banned from Facebook, somebody that that's like happened to Gino. These guys, there's people that just ban ban you. It's like the cancer culture, you know. Well, yeah, and Parler seems to be a place where everybody who's been canceled ends up on. So, so yeah. That's- you know, nah. we may use it as well, dude. Let me tell um, you, I was on the, I was on, I was on part of the I couldn't take it because the crying and whining of some of the people on there was like, oh my god, you people are fucking idiots. Yeah, I did kind of notice that. So a lot I'm of not crying. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm just get, I'm just checking it out really now. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure how I'm going to use it, but I'm still on Instagram. You could see me, Rocker Mike two one two. Still on Facebook under Michael Baker. Uh, make sure you check out the Rock Show podcast group page, and uh, you know, thank you for for um, requesting Grand Funk. And next week is the only ones. Where can we find you, Rob? Hey, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Face, um, uh, Twitter, uh, on everything. Getting lumped up. You look getting lumped up, and my name will pop up there. You look getting yep. lumped up. Rocker Mike's name. Freak John, so we're all on on Instagram and everything, and yep. um and also follow us on Anchor. Uh, Anchor, Anchor is pretty much that uh the, the people that host us and um this and that. Um, hey, you want to give another uh, shout out uh to the guy from uh, XM XM Radio? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, give another shout out to Bill Kelly. 
okay, his Black Hole Bandstand show uh, every Saturday night on on uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage, uh, Channel 24, I believe it is, on Sirius XM. Uh, Bill Kelly's great. He's been around a long time, plays uh, a lot of stuff you've never heard. Um, he gave us a shout-out a few weeks ago, and we're in debt to him for that. Yep. And uh, also, I want to give a shout out to the guys at uh, Live from Studio 6B on Real America Voice. Uh, and they're also on Pluto TV, uh, Facebook, Live from Studio 6B. Slick Rick, Paul Nolan, you guys are fucking great. Uh, I've been showing you guys some of the shows and you've been giving some great responses to it. Thank you very much. Hey, and I got to plug off big fucking interview with Sex Pistol, uh, Glenn Matlock. Glenn Matlock. Uh, Matlock yeah, yeah. Uh, right. We did a we did a show with him on the Rocker Mike and Rob Presents. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Uh, nice long hour, hour long interview with, with Glenn. He was very it's, candid in his called, Jaguar. In his Jaguar. Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, Mike. Have a good Sunday, and remember, don't get drunk. Get drunk. Get Get lumped lumped up. up. See you next week. Have a good one. Take care, people. All right. Bye.